January 1st, 1994, Mexico. While most people are celebrating the start of the new year, maybe watching Barry Manilow or Kiss on Dick Clark's rockin' New Year's Eve, and while the political and corporate leaders of North America were toasting themselves in the implementation of NAFTA, the EZLN was mobilizing to take over five major towns. In the dark, around midnight, fully armed women and men, many armed with machine guns and wearing balaclavas, entered into these towns and started the attack. It was pretty much a shock to everyone, even for those who for years had worked in the very communities where the rebel army had been secretly organizing. And by the time daylight rolled around, they controlled most of Chiapas. In the words of their spokesman, we are sorry for the inconvenience, but this is a revolution. The Zapatista uprising had begun. There's a saying in Mexico. Mexico is many Mexicos. And many times a simple sentence can sum up what would take pages for other people to explain. Mexico is many Mexicos, not just because of the differences in climate and geology and geography and topography, but mostly because of the people. In fact, the government of Mexico officially calls itself a plural cultural government. And there are like 90 different indigenous languages spoken throughout the country. And that's not even including Spanish the main language, of course, or English or German or Arabic, all of which have sizable numbers. The state of Chiapas is an example of this geographical and cultural diversity, and it characterizes the entire country. The story of the state of Chiapas is an example of this. Its, its story is the story of the history of many peoples in Mexico and Latin America, a story of violent oppression, violent conquering, and people that have resisted. Initially, the Aztecs, the Spanish, the Incomunendas system, the Mexican government itself. In starting this story, I could have literally gone back a thousand years. The history of the region's lengthy, it is diverse, and all of it is interesting. But I'm going to start somewhere a little more recent. You see, in the 1990s, while the governments of North America were hammering out a free trade agreement, the people of Chiapas, well-versed in pro-indigenous rights programs and a and a system called liberation theology, were suffering. Many were pretty recent arrivals to the area called Chiapas. They had been pushed across the border by conflicts in Guatemala and El Salvador during the 1980s. Ethnically, they were mostly Mayan of origin, but uh, and they shared many commonalities with the uh, people of Mayan ancestry in Mexico. The government of Mexico, not knowing what to do with all these newcomers, uh, and facing incursions from Guatemalan paramilitary forces, began housing these people in refugee camps and began militarizing the area. At the, at the start of the 1990s, there were nearly 750,000 new arrivals in the area, all steeped in liberation theology and most under the age of 20. The trade agreements, the neoliberalism of the 1990s, was condemned by many people across North America, and the people of Chiapas found themselves at odds with the Mexican government. Ethnically, they're not the same as the majority of Mexicans. Economically, they're mostly poverty-stricken. Uh, they're mostly uneducated. Schools were virtually non-existent. Their needs were ignored. Clean water supplies, sewage facilities were, were simply not there. Like many indigenous people, they were ignored by their colonial governments or treated like animals. They were the lowest of the low to the rulers of Mexico. Most of the farmers, small-scale farms that micro coffee and a few other cash crops were, were set to lose as free trade took hold. 
Free trade would mean that they had to compete on an open market with people and corporations much larger than they were, with the economies of scale that larger industrialized farms can wield like a hammer against small, uh, independent farmers like these. It also meant that the government of Mexico would be removing protections for indigenous peoples as a condition of joining NAFTA. And again, the people of Chiapas would lose. Unknown to many people, this was the moment that someone had been waiting for. In January 1994, a group emerged from the shadows, led by a man calling himself Subcommandant Marcos, the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, or the ELZN. I'm Canadian, so I said E-L-Z-N. They issued their first declaration and revolutionary laws. The, the declaration amounted to a declaration of war on the Mexican government, which they considered to be so out of touch with the will of the people that it was completely illegitimate. They took their name from Emiliano Zapata, a leading figure of the peasant armies during the Mexican Revolution. After instituting some pretty major land reforms and fighting for the rights of uh, campesinos, he eventually was killed in a hail of gunfire after being lured into a meeting, but he is a folk hero in Mexico. His famous quote, it is better to die on your feet than live on your knees, is pretty well known by everyone. But back to the 1990s here. The ELZN emphasized that peaceful means had gotten them nowhere since the 1980s, and that their previous sit-ins and marches and strikes had simply been a giant waste of time. On the morning of January 1st, an estimated 3,000 armed Zapatista insurgents seized the towns and the cities in Chiapas. They freed prisoners that were in jail, they set fire to police buildings, they burned the military barracks to the ground. The guerrillas enjoyed a brief success, but the next day the Mexican army counterattacked and fierce fighting broke out all around the area. But what many people didn't know, like who were these people? Who was this leader? Where had these guys actually come from? Now, Subcommandant Marcos was the leader of the group, if there could be a leader. He was actually a guy by the name of Rafael Vincente. He was born in Mexico, of course, and he had a degree in sociology and a master's degree in philosophy. By his own admission, he was raised in a middle-class kind of lifestyle. His parents encouraged, supported his education. His, his worldview began developing uh, and moving to the left fairly early on. And uh, there was a particular massacre in 1968 that really kind of drove him in that direction. You see, in 1968, the Mexican government had won the Olympics, and they agreed to spend about $150 million on refurbishing stadiums and bringing these people into Mexico City so they could have the Olympics. Now, $150 million in today's money is about a billion dollars in our terms, and the people in the region were really angry. There were protests, there were strikes, um, there were sit-in movements, people marching up and down the streets, and in response, the government wanted to quell this as quickly as possible, so they moved in troops and the army. Over 300 people were killed, thousands of people were arrested, and just to um, dissuade you of any notions that the government wanted this to end peacefully, they employed snipers. A government does not bring in snipers if they're attempting to peaceably resolve something. Now, Raphael arrived in the Chiapas area around 83-84 and attempted to get the people of Chiapas to support an agrarian revolution. Didn't seem like he was all that successful at the time, um, and he may or may not have left to go to Nicaragua during the 1980s, but but they called for greater democratization of the Mexican government that had been controlled by the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, for 65 years. 
they didn't demand independence from Mexico, but more autonomy in the form of land access and use of natural resources uh, and a number of, of terms and conditions that would give more autonomy for the indigenous people there. Back to the revolution. The Zapatistas in the land that they had conquered held some of it for nearly two weeks before a peace treaty was developed. They held some of the lands for about a year before being overrun by the Mexican army and kind of fleeing into the mountains. But once the president found out that the identity of subcommandant Marcos was actually Rafael Vincente, he immediately issued warrants and began planning an attack. Supporters were arrested, a priest was threatened with arrest for allegedly giving aid to the Zapatistas, but he was not really easily dissuaded. Subcommandant Marcos, when surrounded by Mexican troops demanding his surrender, responded by saying, I will see you in hell. Eventually, the president was convinced by more peaceful people in the government that the Chiapas revolt was actually contained, was actually an expression of political discontent, and if you could leave these people as they were, then this would be the best course of action. If you killed Marcos and destroyed the movement, you would have uprisings occurring throughout the entire country. There'd be bombings and kidnappings and terrorist attacks, all in the name of this martyr. For the remaining years of the 1990s, the Zapatistas were pretty much left to their own devices, not in peace, but not really constantly under attack either. When Vincente Fox became president in 2000, uh, for those of you who watch the news, he's the guy that gave Donald Trump the finger. When asked if Mexico would pay uh, for the Trump border wall, so, I mean, some degree of respect where it's due, but when he became president, the Zapatistas marched in protest in Mexico City to present their case to this new government. They issued what they called the Sixth Declaration, uh, and it starts like this, quote, This is our simple word which seeks to touch the hearts of humble and simple people like ourselves, but people who are also, like ourselves, dignified and rebel. This is our simple word for recounting what our path has been and where we are now, in order to explain how we see the world and our country, in order to say what we are thinking of doing and how we are thinking of doing it and in order to invite other persons to walk with us in something very great, which is called Mexico, and something greater, which is called the world. This is our simple word in order to inform all honest and noble hearts that it is we, it is what we want in Mexico and the world. This is our simple word because it is our idea to call on those who are like us and to join together with them everywhere they are living and struggling. It goes on to describe what they want in their ideology, which, which I, guess I'll, I guess I'll take some time here and break down. If you had to give a term to this group, I guess you could call them a Marxist, anarchist, uh, indigenous rights movement. They oppose globalization. They see it as a new way in which the wealthy elites will severely crush the lives of the peasantry underfoot. They were initially opposed to NAFTA because by signing it, the Mexican government had to remove the land reparations to indigenous groups throughout the country. They believe in the concept of mutual aid, real people working together. It's a bottom-up political system, right? For us, uh, sorry, for everyone, everything. For us, nothing. Para todos, todo. Para nosotros, nada. I don't know how good that was, but I tried. They see NAFTA as nothing more than a new form of colonialism in which the, the worst effects of the system are felt by the previously colonized areas that are still mostly made up of indigenous people like those in Chiapas, uh, First Nations peoples in Canada, people of color in Africa and Asia. Globalization in the modern era is nothing but the reiteration of a very old ideal, that 
the wealthy colonizer will force the poor, the native, the female, into a maligned rule where they must work under the unfair system of the exploiter, under terms that they cannot control. Quote, the noble indigenous past of America, the brilliant civilization of Europeans, the wise history of Asian nations, the ancestral wealth of Africa, are corroded by the American way of life. In this way, neoliberalism imposes the destruction of nations and groups of nations in order to reconstruct them according to a single model. This is a planetary war of the worst and cruelest kind waged against humanity. That was Marcos. They consider most political systems inherently problematic because of the lack of any sort of real public involvement. They see it as a form of, like, a representative charade. They believe that smaller units of governance can increase participation and that ruling bodies should always refer back to the wants and desires of the people, not just simply in gerrymandered elections uh, on, you know, fixed term cycles. The Zapatistas don't consider themselves to be a political party. They don't want political power. They don't want to be in charge. They want a reworking of the whole shebang into something way more anarchist. Real participation, real involvement, real people making decisions that affect their communities. They are fiercely feminist. The Women's Revolutionary Law in 1994 uh, was issued on day one of their military action, and it states that uh, women, regardless of their race, creed, color, or political affiliation, have the right to participate in the revolutionary struggle. They have the right to work and receive a fair salary. They have a right to decide the number of children they have and care for. They can participate in all matters of the community. The women and their children have the right to primary attention in their health and in their nutrition. They have a right to an education. They have a right to choose their partner and are not obligated to marry. They have a right to be free of all violence from relatives and strangers. They will be able to occupy positions of leadership and hold military rank in the revolutionary armed forces. And they were not just, you know, talking the talk. It was not uncommon to see young women carrying AK-47s or, or rifles, wearing balaclavas with their faces covered, marching right alongside all of the men. On the January uh, 1st evening, many of the people that were initially involved with the revolution were female. The Zapatistas also uh, continuously re reiterate their support for indigenous peoples who make up about a third of the population of Chiapas, and they extend this uh, to include, quote, all of the exploited and dispossessed of Mexico. They express uh, sympathy to international movements in which they see a common cause, and the, the declaration kind of ends with um, an exhortation for, for anybody who has more respect for humanity than for money to join with the Zapatistas. This is, <laughs> this is literally one of the most inclusive movements that I've read about. Right, here's another quote. Some government official puts out the idea to the media that Marcos might be gay, assuming that the area is still full of enough machismo and homophobia that he's either going to lose support. And uh, Marcos's response is telling, and I love this answer. Right? Quote, As to whether Marcos is gay, yes, Marcos is gay. Marcos is gay in San Francisco, black in South Africa. He is an Asian in Europe. He's a Chicano in San Ysidro an anarchist in Spain, a Palestinian in Israel, a Mayan Indian in the streets of San Cristobal, a Jew in Germany, a Gypsy in Poland, a Mohawk in Quebec, a pacifist in Bosnia, a single woman on the metro at 10 p.m., a peasant without land, a gang member in the slums, an unemployed worker, an unhappy student, and of course, a Zapatista in the mountains. Marcos is all the exploited, marginalized, oppressed minorities resisting and saying enough. 
He is every minority who is now beginning to speak, and every majority that must shut up and listen. He is every untolerated group seeking for a way to speak. Everything that makes power and the good consciences of those in power uncomfortable. This is Marcos. I don't know about you, but I dig that answer. Now, since, since that time, the Zapatistas have had a number of successes. On January 1st, 2006, they began what they called the Other Campaign, a huge, uh, a huge group encompassing all 31 Mexican states in, a, in the build-up to the presidential election, which uh, the Zapatistas made clear that they would not participate in. Sort of like just a little reminder of their existence and their accomplishments. In 2006-2007, Marcos announced the Intercontinental Indigenous Encounter. They invited indigenous people from throughout the Americas and the rest of the world to gather and listen to each other's problems and each other's issues and each other's tales of colonialism. The declaration for the conference uh, designated this date because 515 years since the invasion of ancient indigenous territories and the onslaught of the War of Conquest spoils and capitalist exploitation the object of this meeting is to meet one another and come to know one another's pains and sufferings it is to share our experiences because each tribe is different he also said the aim is to listen and to learn about the struggles the resistance the rebel movements to support them and bind them together to build a national anti-capitalist leftist program so what's happened since then the agricultural sector of the, of the economy in Chiapas uh, is now pretty much commonly owned land. There have been some other gains economically in the last couple decades. They have diversified somewhat uh, with the construction of more roads, better infrastructure. Tourism has become important to the area, and uh, the area itself has become agriculturally important, producing coffee and corn and cacao and tobacco and sugar and fruit and vegetables and honey. Um, it is one of the key states in Mexico's petrochemical industry. A significant amount of drilling and refining takes place in Chiapas, uh, and Chiapas produces 55% of Mexico's hydroelectric energy, and they do it on their own terms, right? But it does remain one of the poorest states in Mexico. They have a huge population living in poverty. 48% uh, of the adults are illiterate. It's still isolated and distant. But the, the Zapatistas will acknowledge that it hasn't been an easy task or a simple task and that progress has been slow. There is lots of work left to be done. But they are consistently proud of what they have done and they see it all as their creation. Local health services are often poorly staffed and they don't feature cutting-edge technology, but it's theirs. Medicines uh, are made in cooperatives and trained midwives attend births. The Zapatista schools, without much technology, focus on liberation teaching and social justice, living with basic concepts like freedom and equality and cooperation. All of the work in the area is done in a co-op, in a cooperative kind of fashion. And although it might take longer, it doesn't make and doesn't make huge amounts of money, it gets done. Perhaps most importantly, the youth make up the largest part of the Zapatista's base. And as time goes on, uh, this youth turns into the Zapatista leadership. Educated in Zapatista schools and raised in communities there, a new generation is beginning to take on these positions of leadership. Their eagerness to assume this collective identity is another mark in the staying power of the Zapatista ideas and Marcos' ideas 20 years ago. Oh, Marcos. Marcos is still alive. He has since publicly claimed that Marcos is gone, that Marcos was nothing but a hallucination, a dream. He is, quote, a suit 
made for the media, a figure called into being when he was needed by the people, now he's gone. Which, a statement that many people took to mean that Marcos is probably on retirement now. He changed his name to Delegate Zero, he changed his name another time. Um, but he may or may not be in retirement right now. The If you were to go to Chiapas, the role of women has transformed visibly, not just in the number of women in leadership positions, but in every aspect of life. You can go there today and find men caring for babies, raising the youth, making meals, caring for elderly family members. Strict gender roles are pretty much non-existent. Sanctions against violence against women are severe and enforced. Even as their they even as you know their poverty remains, but the people are happy because they know that although they may never have a new car or a widescreen television, they have what they need to survive, and they got it by never compromising, by never wavering in their commitment. The the shift from downtrodden alienation to indigenous self-government made a huge difference in their lives, even if they don't live rich by North American standards. And here's the thing. They're still struggling. They're still harassed every once in a while by the military and the police, but the the 2014 in 2014 the government of Mexico was forced by a federal judge to drop all charges against Marcos and the Zapatistas. They had sedition charges and riots and rebellion charges uh, levied against them. But a federal judge said, you have to drop these. The statute of limitations has expired. You never uh, brought them to court. The charges are dropped. They won. Two years later, in 2016, they came out, uh, the Zapatistas came out and said that they were renouncing violence, that their gains had been consolidated, they were freely existing, and didn't want the threat of violence hanging over them anymore. They also said the Mexicans are tired of violence, that between the cartels and the government, that violence is the last thing that Mexico needs more of. All initiatives going forward must be pacifist for the greater good of everybody involved. For the, for the first time, they intend on supporting candidates in the 2018 presidential election. Now, keep in mind, this might, this might trigger you a little, and you're like, oh, they sold out. They didn't sell out. They openly admit to not caring who wins or who loses the election. They think the system is rigged, right? They plan on using the election campaign as a platform to get their message to a larger audience, and they intend on using it to take up space, to force issues, uh, to force issues of poverty and the indigenous into the limelight again. And I have no doubt that they will. Uh, Marcos, back in the mid-1990s, realized the potential of the internet when it was brand new and used it to get recognition for the, the Zapatistas around the world, like, like a modern Che Guevara. Like, in the late 1990s, students in Ontario, Canada, owned shirts with, you know, the pipe-smoking covered face of Marcos on horseback. I, I mean, I know that I did. Imagine being able to live in a community where you go to work every day and benefit everyone in that area, where the profits of your labor go immediately back to your people. There are no, no taxes, property is communal. It's an area where there's no government programs because you do it all yourselves, where you have removed yourselves from the power grid because you didn't want to be tied to the government, where you, you grow all the food that you eat. You never wonder about what's in your packaged meals. Food is local, goods are local. Imagine a system with no political parties, and every decision made is made because the people think that it's the right choice. Where there are no rich people, there are no poor people, where things are different because you thought it was possible, and because you made it that way. This is Chiapas, and these are the Zapatistas.
I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening. What time they vote?